From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hot weather is leading to hot fires. Is there any relief in sight? We'll ask longtime Colorado meteorologist Mike Nelson from Denver 7, and he'll put what we're experiencing into the larger context of climate change. Then, as children head back to school, what doctors continue to learn about the spread of COVID-19, especially in younger kids. Also, focusing the lens of racial inequity on Alzheimer's. Why are Black and Hispanic Americans far more likely to develop that form of dementia? And what can be done about it? We'll hear personal stories that offer both perspective and hope. Plus, answering a Colorado Wonders question about a dark time in state history. There's still a debt owed, and all of us are complicit in those actions. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Pandemic life can feel repetitive, and the weather isn't helping. Every day, the forecast sounds something like this. There will be partly sunny weather, with a high of 98 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 65 degrees. Heat, a lack of moisture, and unrelenting winds have fed wildfires across the state. Let's get perspective on what's happening from a man who has the long view. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. He's the author of the Colorado Weather Almanac. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Any change on the horizon? <laughs> what you just played on that recording is pretty much what we're going to see for a while. The uh, string of 90s uh, today will reach 58 days that we've had 90 or above. Uh, the record is in 2012 at 73. And uh, with half of August still to go and a good chunk of September, oftentimes having days in the 90s, I wouldn't be a bit surprised that we set a new mark for days in the 90s this year. So it's not our imagination. It really is a hot year. It really is. The only difference is back in 2012, we had that string of 73 days in the 90s. We also had 13 days that were over 100 degrees. We haven't had any triple digits yet. So tell us more about the conditions that are feeding wildfires across the state. Well, right now, and it's not just Colorado. There are some terrible fire problems in California as well. You might have seen that fire tornado that was uh, shown over the weekend. That was the first time the National Weather Service has ever issued a warning for a fire tornado, and that occurred with a uh, pyrocumulus cloud out in California. But we have a big dome of high pressure, a great big H on the weather map that's right over Utah. It's just hot, it's dry, not much cloud cover, and it's stagnant. It's just sitting right on top of the western United States, and that's what's preventing uh, any moisture from coming in here, and it just has the hot days, and fortunately for us, fairly comfortable nights. Now, air quality is a thing that really comes to mind for me right now. It's such an issue that there are official websites to track the smoke from the Pine Gulch and the Grizzly Creek fires over on the western slope, and it's amazing how far that smoke can travel, that we can see it in the air and even smell it in Metro Denver. What are the forces behind that? Well, underneath that big dome of high pressure, the winds are relatively light, and they're circulating around in a uh, clockwise motion and just keeping that smoky air from our fires. They drop down to the south in New Mexico, back to Arizona, catch some of the smoke from the California fires, drift it all the way around the top of that high-pressure system and uh, bring it right back into Colorado again. So until this weather pattern shifts 
And at this point, there's not much sign of that. We're going to be stuck with this. Hmm. Now, Grand Junction, it regularly surpasses 100 degrees, but Colorado's all-time record high was 115. That was set last year near Lamar on the Plains. So this might seem like a silly question, but why are some parts of the state so much hotter than others? Elevation, big part of it. So the lower elevations, both out in the Grand Valley and down on the uh, eastern plains, are going to get hotter than they will, of course, up into the mountains. Uh, And a couple of different things that happen out on the eastern plains, that's a really dry heat. They're in a severe drought now, and so... Uh, We're not putting much of the sun's energy into heating up water molecules. It's just heating up dry air. You get those very hot temperatures. And you mentioned those the fire tornado in other states. It is true that fire can create its own weather, clouds, storms. Tell us about that and what that looks like here in Colorado. Well, of course, the fire is a very, very uh, effective way of heating up the, the air uh, just above it. And then you get like a hot air balloon rising, so you'll form... Uh, thermals that will rise high into the atmosphere. And what happened in California is what we call a pyrocumulus cloud. So it was created by the effect of the fire. And as the air is drawn in from all directions at the surface to replace that rising air, it can swirl into vortices, and that's where that tornado occurred. And like you said earlier, this is a very hot year, even when we look back at the longer picture. How does Colorado's current weather picture relate to the larger discussion about climate change? Well, uh, despite uh, any efforts to try and deny the science, the fact of the matter is that when you add carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, each one of those molecules of carbon dioxide uh, is very effective at trapping terrestrial heat, the Earth's heat, from escaping back into outer space. So we're changing the energy balance because we're changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. And for each doubling of carbon dioxide, uh, you increase the heat retention of the atmosphere by about four watts per square meter, which is a just a child's nightlight, but per square meter is over a huge amount of area when you take in the surface of the Earth. So uh, we're on track to create a warming of somewhere between 5 and 7 degrees Fahrenheit between now and the end of the century. Do you see climate change as something that's here with us now, not necessarily just something further down the line? Oh, it's right now. I mean, we've had uh, unprecedented melting of the polar ice caps. We reached 100 degree temperatures in Siberia this summer. Uh, We have terrible fires also up in Alaska. Uh, Our fire season here Uh, This is something that, uh, sadly, we've known about for decades and uh, have not had good policies in place to to stop lighting carbon on fire and to try and work on some of the ways of mitigating the effects of climate change. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I wish I had happier news. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you, the average high temperature has now dropped to 87 so from 90 a month ago, and so eventually this heat wave will break. But uh, for right now, folks, just uh, be careful out there. And if you have any respiratory issues, please take it easy because the air quality is not good. Thanks, Mike. Mike Nelson okay. is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. His books include The Colorado Weather Almanac. 
It's been a week since Glenwood Canyon started burning. It will be a while before we find out exactly how bad the damage is, but people who love that area are already grieving for it. CPR's Stina Sieg recently met one of them. Kyle Jones lives in Glenwood Springs and was out tubing down the Colorado River last Monday when he spotted smoke near I-70. My first thought was, I've seen a lot of burn scars on the median between the two decks going through the canyon, and this was just another roadside fire. But it quickly became apparent that it was much worse than that. It spread to some of the shrub oak in the area and consumed 10-foot-tall, 15-foot-tall trees uh, about a second apart, just moving right down the median. It was horrifying to watch. The pit in my stomach was was heavy. And as we rounded the corner, it jumped underneath the bridge of the upper deck and began to go up the side of the canyon. And within 10 minutes, it was to the top of the canyon and had consumed the entire side of the, the canyon wall. And the flames were already 20, 25 feet tall. By the time we rounded the next bend in the river and got out of view of the fire, the plume was already hundreds of feet tall. The entire corner of I-70 had been burned. Before we turned that corner, though, there was a CDOT worker who had been running down the sidewalk with a fire extinguisher. Um, But once he saw how big the flames had gotten, he turned and ran the other way. I was definitely choking down tears as we got back to Glenwood. Even with my car being stuck at Grizzly Creek, I... I was only concerned about the canyon. It just doesn't seem, it seems so much more important what, what's happening there than any material item. I've been on Facebook for days, refreshing every minute it seems like, and it's not, I know it's not healthy, um, but I've also been going over and watching it from the cross trail um, off Red Mountain, just because I felt like there were not a lot of updates coming and I wanted to know what was happening by the minute. When we watched the flames tear over the No Name Ridge and down into No Name, there was, I remember my girlfriend pretty much collapsed and we both cried watching it from the Red Mountain Trail because it's just, you're so helpless and it's just such a integral part of what makes living out here so special. And so to watch it go in a matter of seconds, it was, it was incredible. Yeah, I, it's something I couldn't have imagined. There's such special places, I mean that, that no-name trail is like a rainforest almost, especially in the springtime. And the waterfalls that go through there are so beautiful. And so to think that, I can't think of another place in Colorado that has that type of ecology. And I'm someone who's finished the 14ers and has hiked extensively in all the ranges and seeks out like more isolated places. And I can't, I've never seen any place like that place. And so the fact that it's gone is tough and it's hard to imagine what it's gonna be when it comes back. It just feels like we're not able to help in any way, and it's super frustrating um, being on the sidelines when our backyard is on fire like this. Well, you know, piano is my therapy, and so yesterday I played quite the uh, nightmare <laughs> improv on the piano over at a church I play for, and I think I'll be writing some music for myself to deal with my emotions on it. My roommates and I have already talked about being a part of whatever revegetation efforts take place in the canyon, whether it's reseeding or helping mitigate rockfall or whatever. I mean, whatever opportunities that there are available for us to help, I would like to be a part of. 
it's definitely a loss, and um, it's very personal for sure. And I, I hope people understand how personal that is, and I hope people understand what a great loss this is for the entire state. I mean, it really is. <clears throat> it's such a huge loss. Kyle Jones speaking from his smoky yard in Glenwood Springs. He was floating down the Colorado River when the Grizzly Creek fire started. That feature was produced by our Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg. You can find her ongoing coverage of the major wildfires burning in Colorado at CPR.org. And when we come back, what doctors continue to learn about how COVID-19 spreads among children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. It's a question that's resonated with just about everybody over the last few months, and now with schools starting to open, it's taken on increasing urgency. How likely are kids to get COVID-19, and how much danger do they pose to each other and to their teachers? Children have made up a steadily growing share of the state's virus cases since the pandemic started. I'm joined by Dr. Sean O'Leary, a professor at CU Anschutz and a specialist in pediatric infectious disease. He helped write the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations for school reopenings. Dr. O'Leary, welcome. Hi, happy to be here. How big a percentage of Colorado's cases are young people? Well, you know, what we've seen based on the state data, and remember that this, these are uh, reported cases or identified cases as opposed to, uh, you know, some of the cases that haven't been identified. Early in the pandemic, we saw uh, about 2% of overall cases were in children 0 to 19. Uh, as the pandemic has worn on over the last few months, we've seen that steadily creep up to roughly around 10% now of the of the total. And and just to put that in perspective, uh, children in that age group represent a little over 20% of the population. Now, let's talk briefly about some recent national numbers from the American Academy of Pediatrics. The percentage of children treated in hospitals has also risen somewhat as a percentage of all COVID hospitalizations. What indication does that give you about those numbers you just told us? Yeah, so some of the numbers that we've seen uh, in children in terms of the number of identified infections have to do with the availability of testing, which uh, varies across the country and even within Colorado. Um, Hospitalization data is a little less sensitive to the vagaries of testing availability because with when when people are hospitalized with suspected COVID-19, essentially all of them are going to be tested. And so seeing the percentage of children, uh, the percentage of the overall population that is hospitalized as, as being children, as is shown in the, the Academy's new report, um, tells me that, yes, children probably are representing a, a bit higher proportion of the overall cases now than they were early in the pandemic. 
So there may have been a real increase in illnesses. Well, certainly there has been a real increase in illnesses. Uh, you know, in a lot of the states where we've seen uh, increases in illnesses in the general population, particularly across the South, it stands to reason that we're also going to see many more infections in, in children at the same time. And nationally, about 90 kids have died of COVID-19, three of those in Colorado. How does that compare to other illnesses, say the flu? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, that is one of the other things that was shown in the report compiled by the Academy that we have had already in, in just a few short months, 90 deaths in children. And to put that in perspective, uh, influenza, which is a you know can be a very severe illness in children, on average kills roughly a hundred children every year in the U.S. And you know in a, in a large country that may seem not like not all that many, but those are all tragedies. And the other thing I would point out is that for every death in a child, that represents many many uh, children who are critically ill who who survive but have long uh, rough hospital courses. And so I think the point here is that this is not a completely benign disease in anyone, including children. Now, certainly it's much more severe in adults than it is in children, but uh, it's not benign in anyone. And and we need to do our best to take care of our entire populations, including children. So currently, children, they make up about 10 percent of all cases in Colorado, like we said earlier, and that number has grown over time. Uh, how worried should parents, and particularly teachers, who are adults and more prone to serious illness, be? Yeah, you know that's that's a good question. We we should all be very concerned um, about trying to control this pandemic, and by that I mean we need to do our best as a as a community to wear our face masks when we're in public, keep physical distance from other individuals, avoid large gatherings, good hand hygiene. In terms of you know within schools, you know, because that's the million dollar question right now. I think when the levels of transmission within this surrounding community are relatively low with mitigation measures in place, I actually think they can be very safe places to be. We can look to other countries where there are levels of transmission that are that we are actually seeing in some places in the U.S. at this point who have successfully reopened schools safely using mitigation measures. So I think in the places in the country where schools are opening in the midst of widespread transmission, as we're seeing uh, in some places in, you know, for example, Florida and Georgia, yeah, that's that's a concern. Those schools are, as as we've seen in the news, shutting down fairly quickly. In places, though, where the virus transmission is really under control, and we're getting there in Colorado, um, I think it is potentially safe to open schools. Now, we do have some experience of this summer. Um, there were some outbreaks with Colorado child care centers and camps. What does that say about the risk? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are a, a few things that we can learn from those those outbreaks. Um, the first of all, I guess I would say the residential camps. Um, that's a different environment than we're talking about in schools. We've got people uh, within in close quarters sharing uh, small cabins. Anyone who's ever, who's ever been to summer camp can attest to the fact that there's not going to be much distancing going on there. And in a lot of those, people were not consistently wearing uh, masks. So I don't think the residential camps offer a lot of lessons. But the childcare centers, I think we can gain some information. So. What we saw is that there, if, if you look at the, the state health department website, CDPHE's website, you can look and see all of the, out, the, the outbreaks that have been reported in Colorado and that they investigate. And the, the number of outbreaks in a, 
facilities where adults congregate, uh, those were f- those far outnumbered the ones in child care centers. There were really only a handful in child care centers. In most of those centers, it was just adults who were infected. And so... And often children were not impacted. Now, that was not 100%. So I don't mean to say that young children cannot get infected and cannot spread it, but they they appear to be less likely to do so. And what is the latest research on children and transmission? Like you said, children can get seriously sick. They're less likely to. We've also heard they may be less likely to transmit it. Yeah, I, I think one of the things I want to point out here is that the the whiplash that we're sort of getting as a society, the, the general public isn't necessarily used to looking at uh, scientific studies, but now we have scientific studies in the headlines practically every day. And the way science works is really taking the preponderance of evidence and not changing our opinion based on one single study. And, and that's so, so what we're seeing now is some conflicting studies, but the preponderance of the evidence is suggesting that younger children appear, so, and, and in most measures, that's children 10 and under, um, appear to be both less likely to get the infection and to spread the infection. Um, adolescents, uh, children over 11 and over, appear to... Uh, possibly to be as likely as adults to to spread the infection, uh, but that's still not entirely clear. Now, masks, Colorado's mandate is that children 11 and older must wear masks, and I imagine that has to do with the research as well about transmission. Younger children are encouraged to wear them. The American Academy of Pediatrics is now coming down pretty strongly that younger kids should wear masks. Why is that? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think the, the Academy's position on that uh, ha- has really comes from a place where we're recognizing that there's really no good reason not to wear a mask. There are very rarely medical conditions that could preclude that, but there are many myths that are circulating about masks that I don't really want to repeat here because I don't want to perpetuate them. But um, the fact is masks are safe to wear, and uh, even younger children can be taught to wear them. Um, I, we, we can go over some of the, the methods there if you'd like. Um, definitely. But first, is the Academy working to update guidelines related to kids in masks? Uh, yeah. So the, the Academy released uh, new guidance on uh, face coverings, strongly encouraging face coverings for all children to and over uh, in you know any public setting and to even practice within the home so that they get used to wearing them. Um, the at the same time, the academy is also updating its its school related guidance. We've released a couple of uh, uh, interim guidances over the last uh, couple of months, and there will be a new one coming out, I believe, tomorrow. And you said you had some recommendations for helping those kids learn to ma- wear masks. Well, I, I uh, hesitate because it's it's perhaps not uh, in the best world of nutrition, but I'm I'm hearing from a lot of my pediatrician colleagues that M and M's work really well. <laughs> as a as a bri- form of bribery, or exactly. Fair enough. Um, And is it also helpful for adults to model mask wearing for kids? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's where it starts is if adults can show that they can wear them comfortably, the kids are going to often follow. Well, Dr. O'Leary, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Sean O'Leary is a professor of pediatrics at CU Anschutz with a specialty in infectious diseases. He helped write back-to-school recommendations for the American Academy of Pediatrics. When we come back, understanding the racial inequities when it comes to Alzheimer's, the challenges and solutions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Early on in the protests for racial justice, Colorado Matters got reading recommendations to better understand this moment in America. And now we invite you to read one of those books with us. The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter chronicles this idea how whiteness is an artificial thing as well. Pick up the book, The History of White People, then join us for a live video chat with the author, September 22nd. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. The coronavirus pandemic is highlighting inequities in U.S. healthcare. Death rates among black and Hispanic people are much higher than for white people, but illnesses often impact racial groups differently. Take Alzheimer's. It's a disease that black Americans are two to three times more likely to develop than white Americans. Here to talk about why that is and what can be done about it are Rosalind Reese and Marlene Franco of the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You both work to reach communities that are hard hit by Alzheimer's. Rosalind, you to Black Coloradans and Marlene to Hispanic folks. You both have experienced Alzheimer's in your families. Marlene, tell us about your stepfather. Um, absolutely. So my stepfather was diagnosed with early or younger onset Alzheimer's disease at the age of 50. And this is a common misconception about Alzheimer's disease that it only targets our older adults, typically over the age of 65. For us, we started seeing signs around his mid-40s, and it wasn't so much of that memory loss. We were seeing behavior changes. You know, someone who was once very friendly and outgoing, always joking, would get very easily irritated and angry. And again, that's another common misconception of Alzheimer's, that it only affects our memories. Individuals living with Alzheimer's can experience changes in mood and behavior and thinking and planning and processing, just to name a few. And we, as a family, contributed contributed these changes to stress. And it took us, I would say, a good four years to get a diagnosis, mainly because He didn't have health insurance and because he couldn't maintain a job. There's also a stigma associated with the disease. We as a family, we were embarrassed. His mind was fading and we decided to keep our problems private and didn't seek out the resources available. And this is another common problem that we see with our Hispanic families. I would say that for us, the biggest challenge and for the Hispanic community as a whole is making the decision to place our loved one in a care community. Majority of our Hispanic families feel a sense of guilt and shame. For us, um, caregiving is just a, a natural role in the family. And being the, not being able to be that primary caregiver for an aging loved one and having to place them in a care community is really a last resort and a decision that, that's made when all other options are exhausted. And this you know, this really can bring on a lot of caregiver stress. And part of the focus that we do in the association is ensuring that they have the tools and resources they need to keep their loved ones at home longer. Hmm. And per- caregiving can be particularly difficult for diseases diseases like Alzheimer's. Uh, tell us a little bit about how an earlier diagnosis could have helped. Oh, for us, I mean, it. it um, I would say that Early diagnosis really puts the individual living with Alzheimer's in the position to make decisions for their um, future, for plan for future care, you know, make those legal uh, financial decisions to be able to 
um, to provide for, for, for their care in the long term. You know, we're seeing that um, early detection um, allows these individuals to also use the available treatments that may provide some relief of the symptoms, typically um, in the earlier stages of the disease and helps them maintain that independence longer. Um, there's also opportunities to learn more about Alzheimer's disease and how to, for caregivers, how to cope with behaviors and how to communicate with your loved one throughout the course and the progression of the disease. And these are all available resources that we have through the education classes that we offer at the association that can be, um, you can find them by visiting our website at aod.org or by calling our helpline. And Rosalind, who in your family struggled with Alzheimer's? Thank you. Um, certainly, let me just just say, because Alzheimer's is a public health crisis and the association leads the way to end Alzheimer's and all other dementias by accelerating global research, driving risk reduction and early detection, and maximizing quality care and support. For me and my family, it's definitely personal. Um, my uh, grandfather had what's called vascular dementia, which is the second most common form of dementia and impacts the brain as a result of multiple strokes. Um, other risk factors could be high blood pressure and heart disease. And for the fact that African-Americans lead, um, unfortunately, lead the way in health disparities, and uh, knowing that high blood pressure is a silent killer, it's imperative that we understand more about the risk factors. And in such, my family, we, um, upon uh, learning more about the Alzheimer's Association before I became a staff member, we uh, pursued education and support and found the uh, programs to be most helpful to us. And so I'm on a mission to definitely raise awareness and um, encourage people to uh, seek help earlier. Early detection matters. And our work at the association, we focus on early detection. We also focus on the health equity and what that means to serve all communities. And was it hard for your grandfather to get a diagnosis? Well, yes. Uh, to be honest with you, um, we, you know, we didn't know at that time. Uh, we, uh, like others, thought that the behaviors and the uh, different uh, uh different challenges my grandfather was having was a normal part of aging. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where we recognize the need to definitely be more intentional um, to encourage people to seek help early. And access to health care for some can be challenging. So my grandfather was of the thought that he didn't need to go to the doctor. Uh, he did live to be 94, which was a blessing. However, during that time, I I can't say that I ever knew he actually went to the doctor. And you mentioned health care inequities. 
Help us understand why those are responsible for more Black and Hispanic people being more likely to develop Alzheimer's. So as far as uh, what we know, and we know that there definitely needs to be more research, and just a few weeks ago our um, Alzheimer's International Conference convened virtually, convened during this COVID time, over 30,000 people virtually, uh, 150-some-odd countries or so. So there was a great deal of research that took place during that conference. But we learned that in that conference that, in fact, uh, when I speak about early detection, that education starting as early early as adolescence can make a difference um, as far as knowing more about uh, what's happening to the brain. We know that systemic inequities, uh, social determinants of health, where you live, work, and play can make an extreme difference in how one accesses health. So there are a variety of factors that actually impact um, how a person seeks health care and how they're actually cared for. African Americans and Hispanics, like Marlene stated, are least likely to receive a diagnosis for a number of reasons. And Rosalind, when you're reaching out with Black and Hispanic communities, where have you had the most success? Well, we have a great deal of success uh, identi- first needing to identify where the needs are. So our focus of meeting people where they are includes uh, looking at uh, data, if you will, and actually see where communities are not served. And recently, during this covid 19 time that we're in this, this uh, period, uh, the association, the Colorado Chapter Association, we recognize the need to form a three-person community engagement team. And that team consists of, of me, uh, Marlene, and our um, third partner, Jenny Lee. And so what we're doing intentionally is the team is designed to be primary contacts for community organizations as well as volunteers for our care and support services throughout Denver metro area. So each one of us, we have a targeted area that we're responsible for engaging our programs and services in. And there are also services outside of the metro area. And Marlene, there are many rural Hispanic communities. What challenges do they face? Well, for the Hispanic community in particular, we're seeing that we um, Hispanics are one to two times more likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And as Rosalind mentioned, the simple answer is that we are more prone for developing vascular diseases like diabetes and blood pressure. But again, there are those inequities, those health determinants that really influence how um, the status of of our Hispanic families. For our Hispanic families, we're also seeing that um, the disease is still seen as a normal part of aging or related to mental health. Hispanics are also less likely to be insured, and this really keeps our families from seeking a diagnosis considering that they will have to cover these costs out of, out of pocket. We're also seeing a, a distrust 
of the healthcare system in these communities. And many of these are driven by language and cultural barriers. You know, not being able to communicate with your doctor in your dominant language or having a family member serve as an interpreter rather than a trained healthcare professional. And there's also a lack of that personal touch that's so important to our Hispanic families that's missing from our healthcare system. Now, Marlene, when you see attention being paid to racial disparities in COVID-19, that's a dynamic that you work with every day. Is that potentially mm-hmm. helpful to have that highlight turned on this now? Yes, absolutely. So the way we view it, and I was recently having a conversation with one of our community uh, uh our community educators, and she painted it so perfectly. You know, we have 5 million individuals living with coronavirus um, currently in the United States versus the 6 million people across the U.S. who are currently living with Alzheimer's. Mm. And most of the individuals currently living with corona are, are expected to, to recover. Unfortunately, the same came not, cannot be said for individuals living with Alzheimer's. The disease is fatal. The progression can be very long, and eventually people do pass. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the opportunity. Marlene Franco and Rosalind Reese work on diversity and inclusion at the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. There's an effort in Colorado to confront racial inequity and social injustice by acknowledging that lynchings took place here. One of the goals is to place historical markers at those sites. We started looking into this after a listener asked a question through Colorado Wonders. CPR's Haley Sanchez tells us about the movement to document the lynchings and to honor those killed. A warning, this story contains graphic depictions. A memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, is the first in the nation dedicated to the legacy of racial terror lynchings. Tara Morton of Fort Collins says when she first learned about the memorial, it made her wonder. I was trying to learn more about what is out there in regards to peace and justice and in regards to kind of healing our past as a society with the racism and slavery. The Alabama Memorial is part of work by the Equal Justice Initiative. The project asks people to confront their history and this country's lynching legacy with historical markers. The initiative confirms at least five lynchings of African-American victims in Colorado. Morton wondered if there are markers at those sites. It turns out there are steps underway to acknowledge Colorado's past. Judy Ullman volunteers with the Colorado Community Remembrance Project. Members include the NAACP, activists, and the Episcopal Church of Colorado. Her initial interest in the project is similar to Morton's. Until white people can acknowledge their role in this situation that we find ourselves in, then, you know, that healing is delayed. Part of that healing has started honoring Preston Porter Jr. The African-American teenager was accused of murder and violently lynched by a mob in 1900. He was only 15 and he was burned at the stake outside of Lyman. Porter, his father and brother were arrested and held in Denver. And he was tortured there and a confession was coerced from him. Despite warnings, the Denver sheriff transported the teenager to Lyman on the Eastern Plains. Preston Porter Jr. was burned alive while 300 people watched. 
every one of these is horrific. That's Rosemary Lytle. She is the NAACP state president for Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. She says the work is not easy, but is a labor of love. And I think it's really important work because there's still a debt owed, and all of us are complicit in those actions. Lytle says she's just as responsible as white people are for documenting the history of Porter's lynching and others who were murdered, and to honor them with dignity. We're still, in this country, lynching people. And I mean, how many times? How many names? So this coming together is about trying to make some statement in the face of that. The coalition has made significant progress so far. A historical marker for Porter will be installed in Denver and dedicated later this fall. The group will send soil from Denver and the lynching site in Lyman for a local and national display. An Alabama museum will present jars of soil from lynching locations across the country. The Colorado Coalition will launch an essay contest later this month for Denver Public High School students. Winners will receive scholarship money from the Equal Justice Initiative. And because of the group's work, Denver's city council recently apologized for Porter's lynching and presented a proclamation that condemned it. That is one of the more significant things that has happened um, in terms of a public recognition of Colorado's complicity. Lytle says the coalition plans to acknowledge Colorado's four other African-American victims of racial terror lynching. Tara Morton, who asked our Colorado Wonders question, says she understands why this work takes time, but she's optimistic. We need to make peace and repair where we have come from and the injustices that happened in our past. Lytle and others with the coalition say the Community Remembrance Project can help people reconcile with the past and start racial justice work. But those efforts can also develop new strategies to overcome today's racial injustices. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Email us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Again, that's cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. As the Democratic National Convention opened Monday night, the party rallied around its presidential nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden. His strongest primary opponent, Bernie Sanders, spoke for him, and so did former First Lady Michelle Obama. But not everybody's convinced that Biden or Republican President Donald Trump is the right person for the job. One voter who is still undecided is Lauren Rosencrantz, an environmental scientist and part-time bartender who lives in Denver. Rosencrantz said she hasn't paid much attention to politics in the past, but she's changing her mind. Your voice is a power. Your ability to vote is a power and you should use it. Her presidential choice, she said, will come down to her perception of character. Not a huge fan of Trump because I don't think he's very smart. It doesn't seem like he has the people's best interest in mind, unless maybe they look like him or pay him lots of money. Kind of the same thing about Biden. Um, You know, I was really going for Bernie because he's a man of the people, at least in my understanding. And Biden, to me, kind of seems like he's just full of it. I feel like I'm stuck. Rosencrantz has an autoimmune disorder, so health care is a big issue for her. Unemployment's a big issue as well. And even just minimum wage, making sure that people have the bare minimum, like the bare minimum of just being able to get by. It's 
even working in a decent position, I still have to have a second job to afford rent and food and all of my doctor bills. If it comes down to Biden or Trump, Rosencrantz says she leans toward Biden, but it's a reluctant choice. In my opinion and understanding, the Democrats do tend to value human rights a bit more than Republicans. So that's why I'm kind of leaning towards Biden. But if a third party came along and had the same values as me, I think it would be more between Biden and a third party. On tonight's convention agenda, former President Bill Clinton and Biden's wife, Jill, who hopes to become first lady. We'd like to hear more from undecided voters. Email us at coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. Young people are the experts when it comes to school. Many have years of experience, but they weren't consulted very much about school at the beginning of the pandemic and how they feel now about going back. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine checks in with kids of all ages on their back-to-school plans. 17-year-old Caleb Washington attends a school in Aurora, so he'll soon sequester in his bedroom for a couple of more months of learning remotely. He'll share bandwidth with his two siblings, also online. In the spring, it worked like this. I would just kind of have to like plan out my schedules. When they were doing their stuff, I would wait until they were done, and then I would uh, do mine. But then he has two even younger siblings, not yet in school. One of them pushes <laughs> into his room during our call. My room doesn't have a lock, so like they constantly just barge in. Distraction, like, like how you just saw. <laughs> he has mixed feelings about more remote learning because of that and because he's a hands-on learner. But he says it's safer being home now. And he is a teenager. Like, I don't have to wake up super early to get dressed and run to the bus stop. But he thinks school administrators need to think long and hard about the impact of virtual learning on kids. Just off of people I know. I know school was a good outlet for them to get away from the house because they have like household problems, the family dynamic wasn't really there. So for them to be stuck in that, I know it has been detrimental. Like other teens, he's trying to balance schoolwork, his mental health, and making money to help support his family when his dad lost his job. Like Caleb, 15-year-old Brianna Meza didn't much like remote learning. The workload was immense. She desperately wants to go back to school in person. But she's skeptical teens will follow health protocols. Me personally, I'm very, like, around my friends grabbing their backpacks to like follow them in the hallways because I'm short and they're super tall. They can walk way faster than I can. Or um, everyone's like constantly like on each other, like hugging. High schoolers running around all over the place, giving each other piggyback rides. It's, I don't think it's the best idea, honestly. Talking it over with her parents, 100% remote was the best choice for her. But she knows being away from high school has been very rough on some of her friends who've fallen into a depression. They feel hopeless. In one local poll, more than 70 percent of students feel that social distancing has negatively affected their mental health. It's just it's rough. I feel like if everyone had worn a mask or maybe socially distanced a bit more, then maybe me and my pals could be prancing on the stage and screaming our heads off. (laughs) Online learning stank. I hated it. That's middle schooler Eric Peterson from Durango. And just sitting at a screen all day. It's really unnerving if you sit there too long, your eyes start to unfocus and you literally can't do anything. He misses his friends, thinks about the kids who have no internet, no way at all to communicate with friends. One thing Eric knows is he wants the summer to end. There's only so many times you can reread 
Harry Potter before it gets really annoying. His family hasn't decided what model of learning to choose. They just want to be sure it's safe to return. Most of the older kids we interviewed will be in remote learning or are leaning towards remote. Let's go to the little kids. I ran into a bunch of them at a homegrown Denver neighborhood summer camp. They were not thrilled about more remote learning. You don't have, like, friends to play with. They just want to be back inside school. I miss doing, uh, with my group, we always do the monkey bars after school. Because we have this special, like, place where you can do pull-ups and we, like, see who we could do more. And it's just kind of boring when you can't do that. And I just wish I could be at school learning something, like, intelligent. To them, school just feels like where learning is supposed to happen. I don't feel like I can focus a lot when it's on the computer. Because at home, it's, it's like a hangout place for me. But every single one of this big posse of kids says one of the things they really miss is their teachers. Five, almost six-year-old Gabriel says it best. I feel like um, I want my teachers back. And I feel like coronavirus is not cool for me. School is fun for me. I feel like it's a lot funner than going to online school. Because you just get to do a lot of education, and then you get to learn more stuff. And what about someone who's just starting school? I asked five-year-old Maya if she's excited to go to kindergarten. Not really, because every time I go to school for my first time, I'm kind of scared. Well, Maya, this year, you're definitely not alone in that feeling. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. The school districts, Jenny mentioned, Aurora Public Schools welcome students back to the virtual classroom today. Denver and Durango schools start the fall semester next week. And that's it for Colorado Matters today. Remember, you can hear the show anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.